0: This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. had my identity stolen this past week, so that was nice. I learned of it when a point-of-sale computer, kind of this mini computer that they use to scan cards, when one of those systems showed up at my house, that's how I learned that my identity had been stolen. This, this box with all this gear, you know, like when you go into a, you know, the the new shake restaurant or the new, you know, nut bar, and they have these kind of iPad looking things. And one of those showed up at my house, addressed to me, so I called up the company, and I said, what, what is this? I never ordered one of these. And turns out somebody has my name and my address and my Social Security number and, and the a company name even, and ordered one of these things. And then they've been running credit cards with it. And in order to run these things, you have to have a checking account. And when you run the credit card with an alleged sale of something, then the credit card processor, which is a third company involved, They run the credit card and then they deposit the money into some checking account that you give them. And if it's fraudulent, then the credit card processing company goes back to this checking account and tries to claw back the money. But in this case, after the credit cards were run fraudulently and deposited into this checking account, which was not mine, the person withdrew the money from the checking account and split. So then the credit card processor went back to try to claw back nothing there. So then they contact me. The person that they think opened the account, and they told me, You owe us forty nine hundred dollars. You know, and it's it's sort of a pain when someone steals your identity. I mean, it's not as big of a pain as it was five years ago or ten years ago when it was really a pain, but it's kind of a pain. I mean, I had to tell the company, hey, I didn't open this account. I don't know that checking account. That's not my checking account. And this was a big scam and this was fraudulent. They had actually, they the Makers of the point of sale equipment. They had actually already marked my this alleged account, not my account, but this alleged account is suspicious, potentially fraudulent. And the credit card processor is gonna do the same thing, and there's no reliability. So it's not terrible. Nonetheless, it's unnerving to think that there's somebody out there who has all my information who can impersonate me, open up an account, be, you know, basically take my identity, steal my identity. Identity is so curious when it comes to banks and credit cards, voting. The only way people can sort of verify you are who you say you are is by various pieces of information, your address, your license, your social security number. It's getting better. There are things like biometric identifiers, you know, thumbprints and iris scans and things like that that are being coded into our smart devices, our phones. So, in that sense, these pieces of information are used to help people doing commerce in the transactional world know that they're doing business with a certain person. Identity, of course, goes much deeper than merely your address and your social security number and your date of birth and that sort of stuff. It includes, in a more metaphysical sense, all the stories that we tell ourselves, all of our histories, all of our experiences. It includes things that we say to ourselves about our abilities, our dispositions, our temperament, our talents, our strengths, our weaknesses. Some people take it as far to include things like luck. Do we have good luck or bad luck? Have we been cursed or blessed? Others go crazy when they think about who they're related to. You know, family history can be a great source of identity for some people. And all of it's kind of wrapped up and packaged in our head as this story, this narrative about who and what we are, what we're capable of. Now, in my case, they had stolen some information about me. They, the credit card thieves, they had stolen my address and my social security number, date of birth, and so they had stolen some markers, some heuristics that are used in the commercial world to do transactions. Of course, they they couldn't steal the deeper me, all the things floating around in my head that I used to identify myself. They couldn't steal that. But it got me thinking that maybe that identity, you know, how solid is that identity? And is that identity ever hijacked or stolen? This deeper narrative that we tell ourselves, where does that identity come from? These are things we've talked about before on this podcast. And there's some people who think about this idea of identity a lot and write about it and talk about it a lot. And the facts are that our churches and our schools and our cultures are concerned with this type of identity. And a lot of time and energy is spent by these various institutions, if you want to call them that, a religious, an educational, a cultural institution. A lot of energy is spent by those things to try to form, affect, maybe even hijack our identity for their aims. This is what Heidegger would call the great conditioning that we all experience earlier We talked about the exoteric forces in our lives. I think that's part of this as well. And we end up getting hijacked in a sense, don't we? Our identity at a deeper level can be stolen by others in a sense, can't it? Not others who always have malintent, by the way. Sometimes the intent is good, but there's a good portion of our identity that gets stolen from us or given to us. Tough to say what the right verb should be. Because when you're conditioned by Das Mann, as Heidegger would say, is your identity being stolen or is it being given? I'm not sure that distinction is all that important because in, in the end, the result is the same. We wake up one day and we're not quite sure who or what we are. We know a lot of stories that are bubbling around in our heads. We're familiar with that. We remember specific experiences. We know what family or church or company or national culture we identify with, but we're not always so clear where all this stuff came from, how it all came to be. And often it's at that juncture when you realize that everything you've been given or made into or conditioned into has sort of taken on a life of its own. There's a point often in life where you realize what you are and what you're doing and what you're thinking and all the stories you're telling yourself and all your goals and noble objectives are all kind of running on autopilot, have kind of hijacked you, have almost possessed you. That's sort of a, a negative term, but it's kind of like that. It's as if you've been possessed by your conditioning, possessed by this created identity. And, and this thing is driving you and scheduling you and pushing you and telling you how to react to things, telling you how to judge things. And when you realize that for the first time, you can, well, some people can go really crazy. They flip out and they have what in Western society is called a midlife crisis, which is basically people waking up saying, well, what am I doing? How on earth did I end up here doing this, saying these things, making these judgments, going to this place? And it's a, it's a crisis. For some people, they divorce their spouse when this happens. They go out and they buy a sports car, sell the house, move to the country, get a tattoo, grow a ponytail. These are all cliches, of course. I don't mean to insult anyone. Just trying to make a point that that there's often a point in life where the formed identity that you have been given by all the acculturating, imbuing, conditioning, institutions, people, forces in your life, there's a point where that formed identity, that formed ego, if you will, Becomes so strong it completely takes you over. A. And then you notice that. B. And maybe you're not thrilled with the results of all this. C. And what can be kind of scary at that stage in your life is you realize you can't just go and unplug the ego, the identity, the computer software that's running in you. You know, if you're surfing the internet and you're cruising along and you you click on the Kardashian story or you. Or you read some horrible political article about something that you find distressing. You just you just close the browser. You just turn it off. Well, that's simple. But you realize that this identity, this ego, this thing never turns off. It never shuts up ever. And every time you look at somebody or something, there's a there's a response by this this great conditioned identity ego thing. And this identity ego thing was put inside you by someone else or many someone else's, not in one fell swoop, mind you, but over years and years and years. And worse, you realize that this deposited identity ego is now replicating itself in the minds of your currently being conditioned children and other pupils and underlings and folks under you that maybe you're conditioning, that you're imbuing, that you're inculcating and modeling for. Ooh, it makes you shiver a little bit. But you but you remember when you first came into this world as an infant, as a complete blank slate, you, you were looking for something to grab onto. You are looking for something to make sense of this new environment you found yourself. You wanted the ego and the identity at that point in time. You needed it. There was a great purpose for it. You, you really, you couldn't have survived without it, right? In fact, it wasn't until you had your own Kind of ego and sense of identity that you could really go out into the world on your own. Otherwise, you're just, you know, you're just perpetually stuck in the bassinets and high chairs of life. You know, you can't live that way. Nonetheless, there is a point in life for most people when you realize the identity, the ego you've been given has completely taken over to the point where you're not even thinking your own thoughts anymore. I described it earlier as the great midlife crisis. That's one form of this realization. It also is manifested, this realization, in other ways. Suffering, depression, arrogance, general obnoxiousness, know it allism insatiable ambition, uncontrolled self-righteousness, religiosity. States which are all at one level the same. States of the asleep, hijacked, zombie. Zombie states, because that's what the identity ego at the apex of its power can do to someone. Unbridled identity can zombify people. Not, not can, does. And at that point, what was once needed the identity, needs to be transcended. There's an excellent story in the New Testament by a guy who transcended his apex identity, his apex ego. And it is, of course, the story of Saul, Paul. Paul, who wrote most of the second half of the New Testament. So, after Acts, basically, everything was written by Paul. Well, not everything, but, but just about everything. And Paul also articulated all of the key doctrines of Christianity, grace, atonement. He was the one who explained what all those things meant. People don't realize that though Christ performed great acts of grace and performed the atonement, Christ during, at least in the record of the gospels, did not really explain what those things meant. It was Paul. Paul was the one who wrote it all out in various letters or epistles to the various branches of the new Christian religion. Paul, of course, didn't start as Paul. When he entered this world as an infant, as an unprogrammed computer, he entered as a guy named Saul. He was born into an elite pharisaical family in Jerusalem. The Pharisees were the leaders, not just secular leaders, but also the theocratic leaders of Jerusalem. Saul was born into a pharisaical family, became a Pharisee himself. He was also a citizen of Rome. So Saul was conditioned from the very beginning to be an elite member of his society. By all the measurements of anyone living in that environment at the time, Saul really had everything, every opportunity anyone could hope to get. Education, status, position, and not just in Jerusalem society, but also in Rome. He was a Roman citizen. He also was clearly highly intelligent. As I mentioned, he wrote basically the second half of the New Testament. So, he was smart, intelligent, and had this incredible upbringing, conditioning, modeling. And he had a deep, deep sense of identity. That much was clear. Well, at the apex of his identity's power, when he was at his most zombified point, when he was most subjected to the powers of his ego, to the point where he didn't even notice that his thoughts weren't even his own thoughts, At his most zombified stage of life, Saul went around with authorization, with letters that authorized him to kill and capture followers of Jesus under the auspices that said followers were an affront to the dominant religion at the time, which was Pharisaical Judaism. And such rebellion by these Jesus followers would presumably undermine the stability of Jewish society of Jerusalem itself, and maybe even tick off Rome, and Rome would come in and destroy the city. That's one of the justifications given, by the way, for the crucifixion of Jesus. He was, he was a rebel, in one sense, against the status quo. So Saul, in his most zombified, hijacked state, driven by his identity, his ego that had been inculcated into him, went around with these letters of authorization and rounded up and imprisoned the followers of Jesus. He was around when one of Jesus' disciples, Stephen, was stoned to death. Saul was kind of on the sidelines watching, holding everybody's coats. Well, one day, Saul and his band are headed to Damascus, and they're going to go round up rebellious Jews there, too. And on the road to Damascus, Paul has this incredible epiphany. He sees this bright, bright light that blinds him, the other members of his traveling band don't see the light, but they do hear the voice. And Saul hears a voice too. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul looks up and says, Well, who are you? Must be kind of weird. You know, he's going on the road to Damascus so sure, so confident that his intentions, his thoughts, all these things are pure and good because they're driven by his pharisaical identity, driven by his Roman sense of entitlement. The result of all the schooling and the modeling that had been done for him by senior members of the Sanhedrin, by other Pharisees, imbued not just with their religious doctrines, but their doctrines of practical governance, their doctrines of stability and pragmatic political actions and policies. And in his most hijacked state, he has this experience where he sees this light, which blinds him. And then he hears this voice that says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Something he probably never even considered that his actions constituted persecution, which of course he couldn't consider because he didn't even realize that he had been zombified by his identity, his identity, which had become an apex predator. I mean, Saul thought he was doing the right thing because that's what he had been taught. That's how he had been conditioned. And then this being of light shows up and says, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And of course, pricks means the cattle prods. So this being of light says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And stop kicking against the cattle prods, which are presumably being used to drive him another way, another direction. Well, that's kind of interesting. You mean there's something else besides our apex predator identities and egos pushing us, guiding us, acting upon us? Well, this is all too much for Saul, and he collapses to the earth, and he's blinded. And this is Saul's midlife crisis. This is his ponytail. This is his tattoo. This is his sports car. This is the crumbling away, or the breaking free, or the beginning of the de-zombification of Paul. And notice I use the name Paul, not Saul, because at this point, Saul stops being Saul and becomes Paul. And Paul looks up and he says, well, what should I do? And this new voice, but this familiar voice says, well, just go to the next town and I'll tell you what to do then. And from that point on, Paul began walking step by step by step, living minute by minute by minute. He went on to the next town, not knowing what would happen there. And a guy named Ananias, who would have been arrested by Saul, had Saul showed up, attended to this new person, Paul, this awakened Paul. You know, and Paul looked exactly like Saul. And so Ananias was a little freaked out by this. An angel needed to come to Ananias and tell him, you know, it's okay I know this guy looks like the murderer Saul and is walking around his body and using his brain still, but it's it's a different guy. It's a guy, Paul, now, and you can take care of him, and you won't be arrested and killed. But Paul began living a very different life than Saul. Now, Paul didn't have his memory banks wiped clean. He wasn't just turned into an infant again. He didn't go backwards in time. He transcended, which just means he went up above. He went up above his identity. He went up above his apex predator ego. And from that position, being up above it, beyond it, transcended above it, he could then use it. And that's what's so great about the process of realizing that you've been hijacked by your apex ego slash identity. Because if you realize that, then you, begin, you can begin the process of using it for your purposes rather than vice versa. In Paul's case, he used all the knowledge that he had of pharisaical life, Jerusalem life, Roman life, to explain in epistle after epistle after epistle what it all means, this doctrine of Christ, this doctrine of grace, atonement, redemption, resurrection, what the cross was supposed to represent, why the law of Moses was not as important as all the Jews back in Jerusalem still thought it was. None of which he could have done had he not been conditioned, which I only mention because a lot of us have a love-hate relationship with the conditioning we've received, with the people who trained, imbued, taught, inculcated us. A lot of us have a love-hate relationship with the people who modeled for us life and gave us the seeds for our own ego and identity. And the hate part of that love-hate relationship manifests itself as anger or despair And people want to just chuck everything and erase their experiences. But you can't erase experience. You can transcend it. You can learn from it. You can rise above it and then use it for your purposes rather than its own purposes. It's kind of like becoming an excellent athlete in a way. I've played a lot of golf over the years. I know golf is not a game that appeals to a lot of people. And it's sort of a stodgy old game and slow and boring and but i you know i like it i've played a lot of golf over the years and golf is a very frustrating game it takes a lot of practice lessons there's a lot of trial and error and everyone's trying to master the perfect swing and i you know i i like playing golf but i also found it frustrating and at the i remember one year at the peak frustration where i was ready to give up the game because i just couldn't seem to be getting any better i read this article and the article said that the best athletes don't think when they're playing their sport. They just play the sport. They just are. They just do. And I thought, that's, that's strange. How can you not think? And I, I don't think the article was right, actually. I think they do think, but they don't think like everyone else thinks. You know, when you're playing golf, the worst thing you can do when you're playing golf is think about all the lessons, think about all the particulars, all the techniques, all the angles and the... Yet at the same time, when you're playing golf, you need to have what is called a swing thought, a simplified higher thought. And the other interesting thing about golf is swing thoughts, simplified thought is not effective until you've gone through a long period of conditioning and training and practice. Well, What does that sound like? It sounds a lot like the conditioning and the training and the modeling that we receive during a certain stage of our life and then kind of transcending it and just doing and being which, of course, you can't do until you go through the first stage. Life is like that. And so there's a difference between transcending one's conditioning, transcending one's identity, and trying to go back in time and erasing it, the latter of which cannot be done. Said another way, Paul could not exist had he not been born Saul and been trained as Saul. There are other stories of these type of awakenings in our scriptures, in our stories. One was pointed out to me by a friend of mine, Tyler Bruff, of Utah State University. It's the story of King Lamoni's father. Lamoni, if you remember, was a Lamanite converted by Ammon, the great missionary. Ammon and Lamoni are traveling together, and they come across King Lamoni's father. And King Lamoni's father is like the grand king, the, the supreme king of all the great Lamanite, you know, super kingdom. And when King Lamoni's father sees his son, the, the sub-king, He's hanging around with this, this Nephite, this Ammon guy. He's a little put off because Ammon's a Nephite and the Lamanites don't like the Nephites. And so King Lamoni's father, the grand king, says to King Lamoni, Hey, hey, son, what are you doing with this Nephite? We don't like the Nephites. You, you ought to kill them. In fact, kill this guy. Son, kill this Nephite. But Lamoni, well, he's become friends with Ammon. Ammon has played an instrumental part in King Lamoni's conversion. King Lamoni, even though his own father, the grand king, is instructing him to kill Ammon, he refuses. And so Lamoni's father, the grand king, he goes berserk and he draws his sword, not to kill Ammon, the Nephite, but to kill his own son for disobedience. So he's going to kill his own, this is the way his mind's working. He's going to kill his own son, who's the sub-king, because his son won't kill the Nephite, who he, the grand king, hates and thinks everybody else should hate too. An example of the insanity of the apex ego identity. An example of the zombification that happens when your ego and identity completely take you over, which had happened in the case of King Lamoni's father. His own sense of what was right and wrong and what was politically expedient, all those things culminated in thoughts that were not his and forced him, like a zombie, to draw his sword to kill his own son. True insanity. And as he's about to kill his own son, Ammon, the Nephite, who he hates, pulls out his sword and puts it up against the grand king's neck. Well, we don't know if it's up against the grand king's neck, but but Ammon pulls out his sword and defends Lamoni, the grand king's own son. And Ammon's kind of a tough guy. I mean, he's a missionary, but he's also a tough guy. He's been chopping arms off. He's that guy. If you remember that story, he, Ammon's the guy who chopped off all the arms. So he gets King Lamoni's father up against his chariot, and he's got a sword pointed at him. And King Lamoni's father said, okay, you got me. Look, I'll give you half my kingdom if you, you let me go. And Ammon says, look, I don't want your kingdom. Just let your son go live his life. Well, this impresses King Lamoni's father. The guy, the guy sort of scratches his head and said, you don't, you don't want my kingdom? Hmm. This is his epiphany. This is where something woke up in him and he said, you know, I seem to be driven by some sort of unbridled sense of identity that's gone insane and hijacked me. And King Lamoni's father lets Lamoni and Ammon go and he presumably rides in his chariot back to camp or the kingdom or the Lamanite, you know, capital or wherever he went. And on the ride home, he's, he's brooding about this. He, you know, he, he can't quite figure out why Ammon was so great. So generous, where, where he would stick up for his son, King Lamoni, and yet require nothing in return except Lamoni's freedom to live his life how he wanted, he gets back to his palace or you know wherever he lived in the Lamanite capital, you know, and as he's brooding, Ammon's brother Aaron shows up, and Aaron teaches King Lamoni's father about God, about light, about the spirit, about sin which at its most fundamental is just a misunderstanding of what is, how things are supposed to work. And it's at that juncture, as King Lamoni's father is learning about God, about the spirit, about sin, that the real impact of his own awakening hits him hard. And he says to Aaron, you know, I would give up all my sins, all my misunderstandings, all my misconceptions to know this true God and to know my true role. And once Lamoni's father expressed that sentiment, he, like Saul, collapsed to the ground. And like Saul's collapse, not without its metaphorical meaning. Saul's identity was chock full of religiosity, religious observance. King Lamoni's father identity, pre-collapse that is, was completely devoid of any religion at all. Interesting that both of these apex identities cloaked their victims, their vassals, their zombie hosts in sin. Well, when King Lamoni's father arose, like Saul, he too began a new path, living moment by moment by moment. Subsequently, he too, like Saul, took on a new name, albeit a relatively strange name, anti-Lehi-Nephi, but he took on a new name, began like Paul to walk a new path step by step. What's interesting in both cases of Paul and King Lamoni's father is there was no great Pronouncement by some angel or by God, declaring how awesome or great or wonderful or ego gratifying this new path they had just embarked on would be. There's a little more in the case of Paul than in the case of King Lamoni's father. I mean in the case of Paul, Ananias, who was called on to care for Paul in his blinded state, was told that Paul was a, a chosen vessel. So there was that, but but the communication that Paul got when he arose was go to the next city. When King Lamoni's father rose, there isn't even a record of the communication that he got other than he allowed Aaron and his brothers to preach throughout the whole land. Because that's kind of what happens when you wake up and transcend your identity. You rise above it and you look elsewhere for your promptings and your thoughts come from somewhere else than your conditioning. And you begin to realize for the first time maybe in your life that all the monkey chatter in your head is not really you. There's something bigger and brighter, but much quieter than your conditioned mind. And it's not like you're an erased hard drive. It's not like you're an infant anew. It's not like you're going back in time when this happens. Transcendence of the identity requires that you take the experience with you. That's the whole point. Because only then can a swing thought be effective. Only then can you use your mind rather than being used by your mind. And that stage of life is a simpler stage with maybe just one or two simple swing thoughts where we're led minute by minute hour by hour to the next town to the next day to the next moment and we know when we get to the next moment to the next hour to the next town it's going to be okay it's going to be better than okay because we're no longer an infant and we're no longer a zombie and we've been freed from the sin of thinking that we're either of those things. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.